You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Michael! Andre, you know what? I'm kind of excited tonight. I'm really excited. Um, I am meeting... When I, when I, I said to you, what do you think about we get this guy on the podcast? Because he's retiring after 40 years in the business. You said, geez, how, how, how old is he? I go, he's at least 40. <laughs> that, well, that and, was my best guess on the whole deal. So. And, and, and on my side, this gentleman has made some of my favorite wines. I've been writing about wine since 2010, so 11 years, and I've never had the chance to meet him. So I am, I am buzzing with excitement tonight because I know I have a lot of questions to get through. But we'll try to keep this to the the one hour mark. Hopefully, not longer because I know this is. I know it's definitely past your bedtime, Michael. It might be past uh, Dave's bedtime. Well, when you're when you're over forty, this is what happens. See, Andre, you got something to look forward to when you get that get to that age. <laughs> so it's it's unbelievable that um, this is one of our legacy podcasts. There's no doubt about it, and um, uh, but it's never really. Every time you think about a legacy podcast, you think of somebody who's you know, with a winery, started one, and is synonymous with that winery. But tonight we have Dave Shepard, who in his 40-year career in the Ontario wine industry has been with, and now, Dave, you have to tell me, because I can only think of three. Is it more than three wineries? Uh, In the winemaking side of things, three in Ontario. Um, But uh, here's an interesting little bit of trivia for you. The very first winery I actually worked for, technically, in Ontario was Barnes Wines. Oh. But uh, that was a very brief, uh, it was probably about six weeks in the summer that I arrived back in Canada and um, wanted to get into the business. And it was after speaking to uh, Carl Kaiser about where I'd been and and wanting to pursue a career in it. And he, he said, oh, well, you know, let, let me think about it. And in the meantime, I got on the phone, got a job at Barnes Wines, and was a, a tour guide for the summer there. <laughs> and then Carl gave me a call later on in the summer and said, yeah, we want to give you a shot. So come on board. So it was a very brief stint at Barnes. So your first winery is in a skill and you're how old? Wait, 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 wait. You, you did jump ahead a bit. What, what's Barnes Winery? I think there's a lot of people listening who don't even know what that is. Yeah, that was back in in 82, I guess, when I went there in that summer, uh, was the oldest winery in Canada. Um, it's right on, or was right on, sort of backing onto uh, Martindale Pond, the, the Henley Course area there by the QEW. Uh, old, old, old buildings, you know, going back to the uh, uh, turn of the century. And uh, they were basically doing ports and cherries and things like that. What What's there now? Is there anything that that's notable? Uh, you know what? The Barnes as a brand got rolled into the first big merger of you know the Brights, Jordan, um, Shadow Gay, that whole that era when all those companies kind of rolled into each other one way or another. Um. So I think the company itself went, you know, closed up shop, went out of business. But the brand, a couple of their brands were picked up by that, that new merger. Nothing that's still available now, I'm assuming. 
I don't think so. I, yeah, I can't think of anything that would be out there now. Hmm. So then you went to work for Carl Kaiser. Yes. Yeah. So that was, that was really the, the beginning of it. So as far as I'm concerned, the, the Barnes was just, uh, you know, put some money in my pocket till Carl phoned me kind of thing. So you're you're how old when you when you finally get into this deal? <laughs> that, that's it. We're just trying to figure out how old Dave is. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna work this out now. Yeah, let me see here. Well, let's see. I was uh, I started with Carl in eighty uh, two, and I was born in fifty eight. Okay, so, just a, a young buck in my early twenties. So you're 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 at a skillin. And what's what's your first job in uh, at Inniskillen? I started right out with um, uh, in the cellar, which was, was kind of a, a funny perspective on the business for me because uh, uh, there was one other guy, Carl's uh, other assistant there, Jr. and myself. So Jr. and myself basically did all of the cellar work in a place that was doing, you know in excess of 100,000 cases of wine a year. Uh, and <laughs> I just kind of thought that was normal at the time because I didn't know any better. I know better now. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I guess, you know, we've never, we, we never got a chance to speak to uh, Carl, uh, which is, which is unfortunate. We did try a couple of times, but I don't think he was well when we, when we tried yeah. um, the last time. Uh, what was Carl like? Oh, Carl, Carl was a larger-than-life character. Uh, very smart guy, but he had that kind of, uh, um, you know, goofy professor kind of uh, sense about him. He was almost like, I teased him a few times about being, you know, a, a life-size Austrian version of Homer Simpson, but uh-huh. with the brain. Dope! <laughs> yeah, he was quite, quite a character, but... Uh, he had a, a mind like a steel trap, that guy. Uh, remembered everything. But what was great about him was that uh, for him remembering, and I mean all manner of subjects, uh, he was quick to share it all with you. He was he was always teaching, always explaining. I had more you know, uh, chalkboard lessons in the tank cellar where the, the chalkboard was the side of the tank and the chalk was his wet finger on it. You know, writing all these things on the the tanks, but uh, uh, great guy, but definitely a diff- different character. I, I think you got to be the right kind of personality to to get along and, and take advantage of what he had to offer. And uh, we were a good fit. He was a, he was a great friend of mine right to the end. And uh, you know you have, you have to be a special kind of guy to to pair up with uh, with Don Zeraldo too. So oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't have found two more different personalities for partners, but it worked, you know, because what one uh, lacked in one aspect, the other one had. So, um, if they were identical, it probably wouldn't have worked so well. But they each so, had their strengths. So, what are you what are you making it in a skillin at this time? Uh, I would back at you know in the early eighties, it was kind of the bread and butter were all the uh, the hybrids. Uh, we were playing with the viniferas, but it wasn't, you know, a big commercially viable uh, thing at that time. Um, I do remember, you know, working on Chardonnay uh, when, you know, the 
entire amount of Chardonnay from Ontario grapes at the time was in Inniskillen cellar, and it amounted to, I think it was nine barrels. Wow. Um, so our bread and butter was, you know, the, the 50,000 liters of Saval Blanc and Vidal and, you know, 100,000 liters of Marshall Foch and, and things like that. And the, the vinifers were there, but they were just, you know, we're playing with them. Um, I think we're doing well with them in the winery. It was, you know, in the vineyards trying to get them established and and get growers to figure out how to grow them, that sort of thing. You know, I, I think Michael did say that we want to keep this linear, and we've sort of jumped right into how your career started and your connection to Carl and Inniskillen. But, like, Dave, what got you into wine? I mean, you're part of the foundation of the, the fine wine industry in, in Canada, but were you a, a big fan of, of, you know, fine wines before you got into this business? Uh, no, not at all, actually. And, you know, I grew up in St. Catherine, so I was, you know, grew up in the heart of wine country, such as it was at the time. Uh, but when I graduated from university... Uh, I went away in the fall of that year that I graduated, grabbed my backpack, uh, headed off to Europe with a buddy of mine. We got uh, open-ended tickets uh, for, I think it was six months or something like that. And we went off to see the world. And after, you know, closing in on the six-month date, my buddy's ready to come back to Canada and start working. And I wasn't quite ready. So uh, I stayed uh, until I basically ran out of money. I had no money left. And I had, uh, in my travels prior to running out of money, been in the uh, the Rhine region and met some great people in a little town in the middle Rhine. And uh, so I thought of them, thought of the wineries, and, you know, I happened to be there during their wine fest time, had a, had a blast. And I thought, oh, I'll go back there and see if there's any work I can pick up. And uh, so I made my way back there. And uh, my friend set me up with a small, like the owner of a small winery in town, a wonderful gentleman named Fritz Bastian. And Fritz uh, said, well, I'll give this Canadian kid a try and, you know, see how it works. And after about two weeks, he said, this is working out just fine. I got a room in the house. Why don't you move in with us? So uh, I moved in with the family and ended up staying for a year with them and that's that's where i really got the love of the business because uh, it was a small enough scale that i did virtually everything um you know vineyards by day weinstube by night um you know i did some tastings on on the rhine river boats you know cruises that's where i actually heard about inniskillen was on a on rhine river cruise where i was pouring wines for my boss fritz Wait, wait, wait. You, you learned about, about Canadian wine outside of Canada? In Germany on a Rhine, Rhine cruise ship, yeah. Um, I, I guess the, the, the quick follow-up question I have, because I'm sure we could probably dive into your entire time there, but did you have a moment, like, was there one wine or one producer where, you know, beyond having the experience and falling in, in love with the business, but was there one wine where you tasted it and it was just like, this is, this is my future? Uh, you know what? I wouldn't say one wine in particular, but you know that that first introduction in Germany, I was, you know, nine wines out of ten that I were that I was drinking were uh, Rieslings, 
And to this day, I love Riesling. Um, so I really enjoyed that. It was something that was, you know, not something I grew up with back here you know, prior to that. So that was kind of my, my first new new love in terms of wines. Um, but, you know, the more wines I had, the more new loves I had, too. So it's kind of kind of blossomed from there. But uh, to this day, I have a, a particular fondness for a really good Riesling. So um, Andre was begging and, and pleading with me uh, by text, because that's how we make sure that we're not going to ask the same question, <laughs> um, but, that I was monopolizing your time. Uh, I had a follow-up question about Carl Kaiser, but uh, every so often, because there's two of us, um, you know, you have to let the other guy talk. <laughs> uh, so you were talking about, uh, you know, working with a lot of hybrids in the early days and then, you know, trying to get the the, the vinifera's to... Uh, you know, get growers to grow them. And there's always a great story that I've heard always secondhand from somebody who's never really done it um, or had a part or a hand in it uh, about Carl talking the Lowry's into starting a Pinot vineyard. Is there truth to that story? And you, do you know much behind that? There is definitely truth to that story. Uh, Lowry's were good growers and, you know, Carl, knowing what it took to grow Pinot, he wasn't going to, you know, try and push it on just anybody because the chance of success with just anybody was, uh, would not be the same, but Lowry's were great growers. They had a, what he thought was a very good spot for Pinot. And, um, the first Pinot in Ontario that I ever worked with was from Lowry Vineyards. Um, that was back in about 84, 84, 85. And have you worked with it like since since you left in a skillet? Have you ever had a chance to work again with Lowry Pinot? Or I have not. Uh, try as I might, there's too much demand for it. But uh, yeah, I, I would would have loved to, but uh, you know, it's it's small scale. They do great things uh, themselves with it. Uh, you know, I, I've bought some. I enjoy it to this day. But uh, you know, I enjoy enjoy it. Uh, the wines that Wes has made. That's as close as I can get to it. So I'm going to, I'm going to move on from Enniskillen unless uh, Andre's got any other questions about Enniskillen. Oh no. Oh no. I'm, I'm just, listen, I, I, I know where we're going. It's going to be fascinating to hear the segue from hybrids and an introduction to Riesling, because I know for myself, um, my first experience with great, Pinot from Ontario was with Coyotes Run, so that that's where I'm I'm going. So Dave, obviously, uh, you you you've been with the three wineries. You start within a skillet. Now you move to Coyotes Run. How does that come into play? Well, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because there's a tie to Carl actually as well with Coyotes Run. Uh, in that, um, the Steve Merza, who you know, the grower who had the property at Coyotes Run, was a grower for Inneskellen, and uh, we were getting Pinot Noir from there. It was Red Pop Pinot at the time. Uh, Carl was so enamored with that site for Pinot Noir that he was trying his best to get uh, uh, his bosses, which at, the, you know, at that time was Vincar, you know, Don Triggs and company. He was pleading with them for probably the better part of three years to buy that property um, 
him to roll it into the the Vincor family because he wanted it for Pinot Noir, and they they were too busy buying other companies and so on. Anyway, they they didn't have any interest, and that bugged Carl right to the end. Uh, but I knew, you know, from Carl and from having worked with those grapes at Inniskill, and I knew the uh, the value. I knew what Carl saw in that property because I worked with it. And that made it an easy jump when when Steve said he he'd found a partner to start a winery and that was the property. I thought, okay, well, I knew what what I was getting into in terms of the, the vineyard, so uh, that made it kind of easy. I, so you, well, go ahead, Andre. Yeah, it's, I guess it's your turn. Well, I, here's the thing: is I, I don't want to jump too far ahead because I and know. Don't do it. Well, no, but here's the thing: is. I, okay, so I'm, I'm thinking about my own personal journey when it comes to becoming a wine lover. And Pinot, I think for a lot of people, becomes the 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 ending point of, you know, when you've discovered the full spectrum of grape. And, I, and I'm still learning. I, I think, Mike, Michael, you and I, and Dave, I'm sure even you, after your 40 years of experience, are still learning about Always, yeah. what varieties are out there, what regions are doing this, what's what. But... I, I think when you're dealing with certain regions, because I've tasted when regions have up and coming varieties. I know I'm, I'm sorry this question is going to be really long, but I need to frame it properly. Being in Oregon and, and tasting Gamay in Oregon, where I think the growers who I tasted making Gamay in Oregon, and I'm not going to single anyone out, have no idea what great Beaujolais tastes like. And I know you don't want a region, you, you, you know, I know you, I know you don't want a region to replicate exactly grape for grape what's being done in other places on the planet but at the same time it's good to have a baseline to work with how do you go into working with pinot without tasting some of the really great pinots or did you taste some of the great pinots and 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 have an aha moment to do that because let's face it burgundy is not a cheap region to learn about neither is you know, the good Pinots of California, if that's what you were looking to emulate. Yeah, it was, you know, I was very fortunate, um, again, during my days at Inniskillen, um, in those early days working with Wes's uh, Pinot, and actually Lely's had some Pinot that we got as well in the mid-80s. I was getting so enamored with Pinot, and and Carl obviously was 100% behind um, making more, trying to plant more, produce more. Uh, it was actually Donald Zeraldo who I think had arranged it. But in 87, uh, we had a very early harvest. Um, so in Ontario, we were almost almost done, you know, three weeks ahead of some years. And Burgundy at the same time was having a very, very late start to their harvest. So Donald Zeraldo kind of set me up to um, go work and and I did the, the two vintages, well, same same year vintage, the two two uh, regions back-to-back. So I did the entire vintage at Inniskillen. And, you know, on the, my last day of that, I packed up the rubber boots and put them in a suitcase and headed to Burgundy and did vintage all over again uh, with two very good houses over there. And that was sort of my introduction to old-world Pinot growing, Pinot making, and uh, that that just pushed me over the edge. I was uh, I was already excited about it, and then I got there and and did that vintage, and I was hooked. There's no turning back. So you can expect the fringe questions from Andre, and I'm going to try and keep us on on track here because hey, that wasn't said, a fringe question. That was an that was a meat and potatoes question. 
that's a that's a that's a one that you know somewhere along the line we would have got to that, but because we never even got to you know what Coyotes runs you know philosophies and what they were doing, and I guess I want to bring you back to that. So the property was or was not growing something at the time that you uh, or that uh, I guess the Aubreys and everybody come in to to create Coyotes Run. Yeah, it was uh, you know Jeff Aubrey's partner Steve had been farming it already. Uh, he had the the red paw pinot block had been up and producing. That was that was there long before coyotes. Um, there was some Chardonnay there as well, and uh, there was actually a block of Vidal there, which I think we used the first year and then replaced that with Chardonnay. Um, so it was not fully planted at at the time that coyotes got up and running. It was probably. I'm going to say no more than about 25% planted that property. Um, but there was a track record with the, the Pinot and the Shard from there already. So the, the shtick of, and, and, I, and I call it shtick, but it really is uh, some of the most interesting tastings uh, I've ever had with Coyote's Run was, and you've already mentioned it, was that red paw, black paw uh, kind of series that was going on. Uh, when did the idea of of breaking down those soils and grapes come into your head? Because that's got to be a a winemaker's uh, uh, decision, I I would think. Uh, and for listeners who who don't remember Coyote's Run, um, had red clay soils and black clay soils, and some of the most interesting wines that you made were called Red Paw and, and Black Paw. You did Pinot. I know you definitely did Cabernet Franc. Um, and I don't know if you did Chardonnay or not with that. Yeah, we we did. And it was uh, it was pretty early on. I think uh, in the first, first vintage there, um, we had both Red Paw and Black Paw um, Pinot uh, producing. Uh, and just for pure logistical reasons, because they were two separate blocks, they were picked as separate blocks. And it just kind of occurred to me, you know, from walking the vineyards, noticing how different the soils were from each other. It was like night and day. And uh, I it was just, you know, you get that seed planted in the back of your head, that wonder, you know, wondering, I wonder if that makes a difference. And don't really know, but because they... They were such distinctly different blocks, but yet, you know, meters apart from each other. Um, I thought, well, let's just do a little quick and easy test and, uh, you know, I'll vinify them completely separately, but do the same thing to both. And we'll just see, you know, and if they're not really noticeably different from each other, actually make make my life easier, roll them (laughs) together and that's the Pinot. But if they are different, well, then we could be on to something pretty interesting. And uh, so when I first did them separately and then they, you know, evolved a bit after some time in barrel, I thought, wow, these are so drastically different in a really cool way that I thought, well, let's just see, is this a one-off? Is it something we did or can I replicate this? So did a follow-up vintage. And I think it wasn't until I'd done the follow-up vintage when I realized that, no, this is, this is a real thing. And, uh, we got to do this, and and it's it's just fun and interesting. So we're just going to keep doing this, and um, you know, divide up the the pinot and make make two. It 
probably cost us more in terms of cost of production because you know extra extra set of labels uh, you know doing things twice it would be easier to do a larger volume of one thing than it is two smaller volumes of two different things but the two different things really were were kind of fun and interesting and and a cool story as it turned out you know i I find it interesting that you talk about um costs and being mindful of costs with running the business because i think often when we're when we're talking to winemakers winemakers aren't the people that necessarily need to worry about the um about the business part but it was i think one of the things that led to coyotes run being mine and i'm sure michael this was definitely a factor in as well like the the wines were always very affordable at, at coyotes run in in spite of the really high quality well that's yeah that's what uh, we strive to and um you know working for a smaller winery like that it's something you have to be mindful of um you know, <laughs> you guys know what kind of margins we deal with uh, producing wine in Ontario. So, uh, you know, you, the the trick is to do the best you can do, but um, you know, don't be frivolous with anything. You got to do the right thing. So, when it's important to do something that costs you money, you do it. It's the unimportant things that you uh, uh, you keep keep tabs on the expenses on. So, for, so let's just step back just quick, quickly here. You were with Inniskillen for how long? Uh, that was turned out to be twenty-one years. Wow. Okay. Wow. I was I wasn't expecting that answer. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those moments. I'm like, no, it's got to be somewhere in the like the, the high teens. Yeah. Like but, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. So um, now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get into a a, a, a very kind of bizarre question because i i remember this part uh of a, a sad story <laughs> i had heard about uh about coyotes run that you were the first vineyard to I, I think it was called red blotch is that is that a disease that is a disease yes and you were the, you were the first vineyard in ontario to have that nice distinction to have obviously yeah. What is what is that kind of feeling when you're walking through the vineyard and you you see this and you realize you're going to probably lose that whole block or or whatever you're doing? Well, that red blotch thing it's a it's a funny disease as um, I'm not sure we were the first ones to have it, but probably the first ones to identify it. Um, it's strange in that with that disease things look normal for most of the year. You know, the, the vines come through the winter, they look fine. They start growing in the spring, they look fine. All summer long, they're looking good. They start to ripen up. Everything looks fine. And then, you know, it, they reach a point where they just don't ripen anymore. And you're thinking, what the hell is going on here? And then um, I think it was uh, it was such a curious thing uh that we sort of tapped into the local resources we have, you know, the experts around the, um, between, you know, Vineland and Brock and college and, you know, some of the longstanding uh, experts in the area. I think we brought attention to it in a hurry because we just couldn't figure out what the heck was going on with this thing. And, uh, uh, you know, to this day, the, the experts, Brock and UC Davis and Cornell and around the world are trying to get wrap their heads around this red blotch disease. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a, a sad thing that uh, we lost a good chunk of vineyard to, to that. 
And do they just lie fallow for a while to try and get rid of that, or or were you able to, or did you just have to get rid of everything and, and start again the next year, or, or how did that turn yeah, out? Yeah, it it's pretty much a matter of ripping everything out and and starting over. And oddly enough, you know, the current train of thought is that most of the red blotch that is around uh, North America has come from plant material. So it was, you know, buying vines from nurseries that were infected and then putting them in the ground. And, and you know, it's kind of a latent thing. It uh, doesn't manifest itself right away, but over time it does. It gets worse and worse. And, um, so now the, the big focus on eradicating it is all, you know, in procuring clean nursery stock. So lots of uh, testing and, you know, sampling and things before they ever get to the vineyards. So when, once your vineyard is infected with something, there's no way to, to cure that, that sort of disease? Or is there any way to, to treat stuff like that? Or is it just a matter of you got to wait till the vines die and then and then replant them? Yeah, there really doesn't seem to be any way to, to treat it. Um, it doesn't... It's hard to say. They're, they're trying to figure out what's the vector for, for spread and there's there's a lot of debate about that as well, and um, but it does seem to be one of those things that you don't really know you have it till it till it's too late kind of thing, because like I say, things look normal in many cases for years and years until one day they start to look not normal, and then you wonder what's up. So let's get on to a brighter topic, I guess. Yeah, so do it. Coyote's Run was really known for that Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And then I think a little bit later, maybe a little bit of Cab Franc, but you really were like Chardonnay and, and Pinot Noir. And I always found it a heartbreaking thing that you never got um, uh, the award for, for winemaker of the year at the uh, uh, Ontario Wine Awards. That's kind of an aside here. Uh, because a lot of you know, one of the criteria for uh, that award is a a breadth in a portfolio, and and yet uh, you did have quite a breadth of wine that you were making at Coyotes Run. Just you, what you were known for were those Chardonnays and Pinots. So what else were you making at Coyotes Run, and what were your favorite grapes to work with? Oh, actually, you know what? We had it was a great spot out there in St. David's for the uh, uh, for the big reds. Like we were very successful with Syrah. Um, even managed to get it through the winters. I don't know how, but uh, hmm. uh, Syrah survived just fine out there. We had beautiful Syrah, uh, Merlot, uh, Cab Franc, and Cab Sauve. So got, I got to work with a lot of a lot of good reds, and actually. I quite enjoyed that. Um, and, you know, with their ripening at different times, it, it kind of uh, worked for us too, because uh, by the time Pinot Noirs were all in and fermented and tucked away in barrels, we were pulling in some of the later reds and, you know, getting a second round out of the fer- fermentation tanks and so on. Uh, made for a long harvest, you know, starting early and finishing late. But uh, it, it was kind of fun to make all those different varieties too. I I, I don't really know where to go with that, Michael. Like I, uh, I know you went with favorite, I, I know I, you went with I, favorite I varieties. I, I know when you talk about favorite varieties, like you're asking, 
a winemaker about their favorite children, I, I was going to kind of go <laughs> a different direction and be like, you know, I, I think I think as marketers, we've gotten into a bad habit in Niagara of touting the hot vintages as the good vintages. And I'm putting that in air quotes. Do you have any vintages that you were more excited to work with or when you saw the potential for Chardonnay, there's my first one for this podcast for the swear jar, and yeah. Pinot Noir in the cooler vintage where it's just like, oh, okay, we're not dealing with 2007, 2000, uh, 2010, 2012, but the wines are really awesome, but only for these cooler climate varieties. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a very good point because, uh, like you say, uh, it was often frustrating at times to hear um, you know, some of the critics at large uh, panning the cooler years um, and, you know, touting the, the really hot years because we do so many varieties in Ontario that, you know, what's, what thrives in a really hot, dry year, uh, you know, is a variety that's not going to thrive in a cool year. And the, there's, there's some varieties that hate that heat and, you know, want it cool. So, you know, what's uh, a beautiful hot summer isn't necessarily a good vintage for all varieties. Uh, I think for me, some of the best vintages, especially for Chardonnay and Pinot, were the years that were warm, but not hot. But I think more importantly, dry at the right time of year. Um, Just both Chardonnay and Pinot, you know, pretty thin skinned, uh, very juicy grapes when they're ripe break down pretty easily and as long as the the weather is dry they seem to come through pretty healthy uh doesn't have to be uber hot for them you know just like a nice comfortable high teens low 20s summer you know early fall kind of days beautiful you don't need 28 30 degrees for for those varieties and i think they actually perform better when it's a bit cooler so is is the fact that 2020 cuz I remember 26 like 2016 a lot of people said were was the best vintage that we ever had in terms of like growing conditions across the board from cab sauve to to riesling even though I know it's a challenge when it's that hot but I just remember in 2016 the nights didn't cool down. In 2020 we got this weird weird summer where the nights cooled down. Is it just you decided to hang your hat up because we we hit that perfect vintage, and you know there's just you've already no got him retiring. We haven't even gone to where he works. I know. Now. Okay. 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 Fine. Problem. Fine. Fine. Okay. We'll we'll shelve that. We'll shelve that question, Michael. You, you get to the next God, question. I'd say linear and Andre's over there. <laughs> well, you know what? I I'll, it will jump in there because I, I think 2020 was you know one of the best I've ever seen in that span of 40 vintages, and it was for that reason. Those you know, warm by day, cool by night, and dry and not crazy humid was a beautiful thing. So it was kind of a nice, nice way to go out. Sorry, so, sorry, Michael. I, I promise I'll, I'll try to behave. Holy jumping! <laughs> okay, so uh, Dave, I always thought it was kind of mean. Um, uh, something that happened while you were at Coyote, Coyotes Run. Uh, and I'll, I'll try and preface this with a little little story, and maybe you'll know where I'm going. Uh, I was once at uh, a, a retirement dinner for uh, an Australian winemaker, and uh, the winery had surprised him 
with a wine that was made by his uh, assistant uh, to celebrate his his retirement. And and so I guess my question is: on your thirtieth anniversary, you ended up having to make your own wine uh, to celebrate it. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, any thoughts on on that? I know it was a 2012, uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure it was a, a Cabernet Sauvignon. Any thoughts on that on that 30th anniversary wine? Yeah, and have I've you had any since? I, I have. I still have a few in my cellar, and uh, you know, it's one of those wines when I when I pull it out because it's getting on in years now. You know, it's uh, I think oh, I wonder how it's holding up, but. Uh, it was holding up beautifully and uh you know it takes me back and it's uh, as much as i love doing all the the pinots at flat rock every time i have a sip of that that cab so i think oh you know i kind of miss making cab so too because I, I really did enjoy that wine yeah because I, I always saw that wine and I, I thought wow why couldn't they have just made you a wine and presented it to you so Sorry, it, just it did, just did just for those bit. of just for those of us who aren't complete like on the inside of this what wine was it because you sort of you've you've, ta- you, you've talked about the wine michael but you didn't set up like what the wine was it was a it was a 2012 cabernet sauvignon 12 being such a great vintage yes uh and dave loving uh to work with cabernet sauvignon it happened to be his 30th vintage and uh, and actually, the label did say uh, in honor of Dave's thirtieth. Yeah, yeah, it was it was actually a very nice gesture on on the the part of the Aubreys. You know, uh, uh, Jeff and Patty had uh, had thought of it and, and said, uh, uh, "Go know, make it yourself." Yeah, go make it yourself. Make yourself something nice and special. You know, <laughs> you, you want you wanted a birthday cake for your birthday? Go make it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, and so finally, we get to the end of Coyote's run. You're you're you've been there how many years? Uh, that turned out to be about fourteen, I think, in total. So, so fourteen years at Coyote's run, and and um, I, I don't know if we can talk about how you end up end up leaving. I know the winery gets sold. Uh, do you leave of your own volition, or do you kind of go, I don't like the direction, or how does that how does that turn out that you end up uh, leaving? after the sale yeah you know what i, I gave the the new owners a, a fair shake i worked for them for about a year after the after the sale but um you know be, between you guys and me we were myself and the new owners were uh not really on the same moral compass bearing if you know what i mean and uh i, I was not enjoying sort of the the way they were doing business and the way I thought they wanted to take the business. Uh, so I was, you know, considering thoughts of what my next move might be. And I was very fortunate in that, uh, at that time, um, Ed Madronich was looking for a new winemaker to replace Jay Johnson, who was moving on. And I'd known Ed from, you know, for years and years and he knew of the sale and he just kind of phoned me out of the blue and said, "Hey, David," said, "You're just, you know, just kind of wondering uh, how you're enjoying working for the new owners and how it's going and and so on." And I, his timing was great. I just kind of said, "Well, you know, Ed, it's funny you should ask." <laughs> so, <laughs> Matt, so we got 
we got together and uh, chatted and he was kind of explaining where he wanted to go with Flat Rock and how he thought I might fit into that plan. And uh, I gave it a good thought and I kind of figured, you know, that kind of fits into my plans too. And uh, I think we can do something good here. So I was very fortunate. It was a seamless move for me. Uh, it it uh, it almost seemed like the the dominoes were set to stack, though, because when Jay moved to to Hidden Bench and you got the the call from Ed, uh, as a consumer, it looked like it was it was almost it was almost destiny the way the the, yeah. the dominoes the dominoes lined up. It felt like a logical move. Uh, what year was this that you made the switch to Flat Rock? So that would have been in the early summer of 2017. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you so you've been there basically five, 5 years is what we're looking at. But it's this is not the first time you've worked with Ed Madronic. No, actually Ed um back in the days of uh you know after Carl and Donald had sold or merged in Skillen and it kind of got rolled into the Vincor uh, family of companies uh Ed had been doing some marketing for Vincor. So he was working out of their, their Mississauga office. And uh, I think Donald Zeraldo was kind of impressed at some meetings by uh, with Ed and, uh, you know, pulled some strings with his, uh, uh, you know, the powers that be at Vincor and said, I want, I want this guy, Ed, to help out with the marketing at Inniskillen. So uh, that was where I first met Ed. Is Donald dragged him down to Inniskillen to, uh, take over uh, some of the marketing for him. So, um, you know, so I didn't work with him on a daily basis because he was out of the Mississauga, but uh, we, we crossed paths uh, uh, quite a bit. And, uh, you know, Don- Donald's always been a pretty good judge of character. So I think he uh, uh, he saw something in, in Ed that was there. And, you know, to this day, I still see it. Ed's a brilliant marketer. He's, he's done great things for this company. It's not just a matter, you you know, if I I can take a moment just to talk about about Ed, though, it's not just a matter of being able to sell stuff, but it's understanding that the integrity of the product is important. And I mean, it's it's one of the things I've always admired. I I, I think the fact that you went from Coyote's run to Flat Rock was a a very logical, logical fit, because one of my favorite things about Flat Rock, and I've, I've said it in my writing, and Michael, we've talked about it on the podcast, is... That whole concept of value for money, the fact that 35 although the price has gone up with this upcoming vintage, and I think the people at Flat Rock have been listening to this podcast too much that they raised the price on the Gravity Pinot Noir. <laughs> but you know, just to take it back a, a bit, when you went from working with um, Niagara on the Lake fruit versus working with bench fruit, um, it, how much of a difference is there and and did that bring its own set of challenges or were you just like ready to rock when you showed up at flat rock well it is it is different um but you know every every vineyard is different too um you know in my years at uh well at coyotes run basically i was dealing with you know saint david's fruit uh different from what i was working with at inniskillen at inniskillen actually had a little bit of everything to work with because we had our own vineyards in Niagara Lake, but we also had growers all across the peninsula, you know, including up on the bench. So I was quite familiar with uh, a lot of different areas of, of the region. Um, I, I think one of the things that intrigued me about Flat Rock was knowing that they focus on Riesling, Pinot, and Chard there. Um, 
and only those really as a focus was very attractive to me because I thought um, in knowing that region, knowing how it grows, that was a smart thing. That was a guy who was focusing on the right things and not trying to just, you know, um, plant and produce whatever the market uh, dictated, whatever was hot in the market. He, uh, Ed, you know, was very smart about his, knowing his property and knowing that uh, it wouldn't be the greatest place for Cabsove and forget about Syrah and so on and so on. Uh, he, he figured out early on that it's great for Riesling, great for Pinot, great for Chard. That's what we'll do. Um, so uh, I had to, of course, get used to that vineyard because it was uh, it was different. But it was not unfamiliar, so um, it, it went pretty well. And I, you know, I got to say, two, three years in, I had much better handle on it than year one, because you you get to see trends and, and see what happens in a particular site. But uh, uh, it's been it's been good fun, and I I applaud him for sticking to his guns and, and hanging on to those three varieties, doing them right. All right, all right. So which is better? Niagara on the lake or bench fruit? <laughs> now, now, now you're asking about children again. Uh, but I, I had to. I absolutely had to. Uh, you know what? I'll go out on a limb. I shouldn't, shouldn't even do that because it depends which vineyard. But uh, I've had some of the best um, cabs and merlots from Niagara on the lake. I've had some awesome ones from the bench in terms of Numbers. I think I've had more, more good uh, cabs and things from Niagara than I have the bench. Um, Rieslings, I would say, is the other way around for me. Um, Chard and Pinot, I think, are so site specific that <laughs> the right the right vineyard is the right vineyard, and I don't care if it's in Niagara or on the bench or where it is. If it's a, if it's the right one, it's the right one. Um, but I, I think he, you know, some places are just generally better suited for some varieties than others. So it really depends. It's, you know, it's a small region, but it's a big region. You know, there's, you look at Nagarn Lake and you think, are you talking down by Herbert Kunzelman on right on the lake there? Or, you know, back where the Lowry's are, it's, they're both Nagarn Lake, but two drastically different, uh, sets of circumstances there. So since Andre's asking you like your favorites and things like that, uh, before I go on with any other uh, questions about Flat Rock, your favorite wine that you have made over the years? Oh, good question, Michael. Ooh, that is a good question. That is a very good question. You know what? There was one that I loved, and it was a 1998 Montague Vineyard Pinot Noir. Ooh. That was one of my favorites. Um, that Dave's 30th uh, Cab Sauve uh, was one of my favorites. And that was, I think, mostly because, uh, you know, I was given the opportunity to take an absolutely pristine block of vineyard and use all of the grapes for that. So that was that was kind of a, a nice luxury for me. But it, it paid because the grapes were just so beautiful that year. It was it was a no-brainer for me to use that block. That was a fun one. 
And, you know, since going to Flat Rock, um, I fell in love with a couple of those Nadia Vineyard uh, Rieslings. Uh, being and, a Riesling fan, yeah. Yeah, it's taken me back to my days in Germany, and and I'm astounded at how those those Rieslings age. Um, when I went there, it was the year I started, but it was before I officially went to Flat Rock. I went to an event they had out on the green roof patio there in the summer. And Ed had, had pulled out back vintages of, of Rieslings. So he had an 08 Nudges Riesling. And, and it was on a table with a couple of newer ones. And I remember this this young young guy, Jake, working the table. And he said, oh, Jake, I'd love to try that 08. And he poured me a glass. And I went off to a nice shady spot and sat and took a sip. And I thought... Damn it, he poured me the wrong one. This this is too youthful. This must be like the 2015 or 16 or something. So I went back to the table, and uh, he showed me the bottle he poured it from, and he was he was right, and that was the 08. And I thought, oh, my God, this this Riesling is amazing. It's, it was so youthful. And then now I've got four more vintages of, of Nudge's Rieslings under my belt there that all astound me for the same reason. Um, it's just, uh, there's something special about that block and that, that's been fun to work with. So you're, you're, you're five years at flat rock. You've decided to, to hang it up. Uh, my understanding is you're, you're going to go just into a, a consultant's role. Is that, is that kind of what you're, you're doing now? Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of backing away slowly. You know, I love my association with the, the wine industry. I, you know, I'm on the, I do a little bit of stuff with Niagara college, and Brock and VQA and the DGO, things like that. I'd like to keep those connections going a bit. Uh, and, you know, part of part of my mandate when I started at Flat Rock was to um, provide Ed with a seamless transition into the next phase. And uh, so, you know, I'm, now I'm, I've been kind of mentoring uh, Allison Findlay, who's a talented young winemaker, uh, and you know, she just needed a bit more time and a bit more experience, and uh, had a bit more, uh, you know, old man guidance. And uh, she's ready now, and uh, ready and excited. So it, it's, I think it's a win-win. You know, she she's going to have the opportunity now to to take the reins and do her thing, and that'll allow me to, you know, stay in the business but back away and relax a little bit more and. You know, the, the things that used to keep me awake at night will now keep Allison awake at night. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I can still enjoy the wine. Well, I, I mean, here's here's one thing. I know if we go way back to, I think, our second legacy podcast where we had a chance to talk to Donald Zeraldo, he kind of issued a challenge to the young the younger people in the industry to sort of step up. What advice would you give to people who are either young winemakers or young, you know, industry professionals trying to get into the industry um, to make sure that they're kind of on the right path, that they're pushing the envelope of making sure they're making something that is uh, delicious, but at the same time still on, you know, the cutting edge of, of you know, what what's happening in the world. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I give credit to the – to this generation that's up and coming like Allison and her, her uh, peers, because a lot of them have 
seen a bit of the world already and, and have focused on doing vintages in other places. And I think that's wonderful for perspective. Um, you know, every place is different. Uh, but I think all those lessons are, are quite valuable. And they get to see, you know, the same job done in different ways by different people. And there's, you know, little things you can pick up uh, always. Something either, you know, what to do or what not to do. Uh, both are, are valuable lessons. Um, so I, I'm quite enthusiastic for this generation that's up and coming. I think they've had more resources to train them, uh, certainly than back in my day, because I predate both Covey and and the Niagara College program. <laughs> um, I actually remember walking through the, the fields uh, where Niagara College is today with, with John O'Grislow, walking through an empty field with him saying, yeah, this is where we're going to build the, the school and we're going to have the wine-making thing over here. And it was, it was, uh, It's been kind of fun to watch that all come to fruition. Um, so we asked this of, of uh, many of our legacy podcasters. Um, because you, you know, you obviously have the years under your belt, but what is Ontario's best variety? Ooh. Ooh. You know what? I, I think, I think there are probably four workhorse varieties, um, and a couple others that, you know, probably could be workhorse varieties, but aren't yet. But I think this will make Andre happy. Shard is is a no brainer. Yeah, that thrives here. I think Riesling is a no brainer. Uh, you know, so I would say those two whites are workhorse whites and um, should are here to stay and should be here to stay. Um, Pinot, not everywhere, but Pinot in the right places. I think this is a wonderful um, climate for that. And then, you know, on the outside, I think. Gamay could be, but isn't yet. Uh, Cab Franc, I think, already is a workhorse, and some beautiful Cab Francs from here every year. Obviously, much better in the in the the warmer, drier years. But I think, uh, uh, in general, we do some great things with Cab Franc. Nine and a half years out of ten. So. And and I guess I should ask this, although maybe you have answered it, just from the the work you've you've done your your oeuvre, let's call it. But what was your favorite grape to work with? I got I got to say Pinot Noir, uh, and I think favorite is kind of a funny word. It's the one I like to work with the most, but you know some days hate working with it the most. It, it's it's probably been the most challenging but having said that when when things work out right it's the most rewarding as well um so i, I would say if i had to pick one variety it would be that because you know I, as much as i love making wine i love drinking wine too I'm, I'm as big a consumer as anybody uh and i just love drinking you know it's uh it's just my go-to I thoroughly enjoy the other stuff, but I always always got a place for Pinot. You know, I think that's as good a place to end it. I think this may be the first time we've actually stuck to a 
linear trajectory in one of our <laughs> legacy podcasts. So <laughs> almost, we we got pretty close there. Okay, it was my fault that we. I, okay, I think when we go back and re-listen to this, Michael, my questions make sense. I didn't say they don't make sense. They just don't make sense where you put them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dave, I, I I know that you you're hanging up your hat, but you, it sounds like you're really going to be anchored into the industry. So. I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing next. And, and Michael, I think at, at some point, maybe at the end of the 2021 harvest, we've got to get Allie on to talk to her about uh, getting the training wheels ripped off because I know she's um, very passionate about the local industry and has worked some interesting places and has her own interesting career too. So, uh, And we should ask if Dave did a lot of mansplaining or not. So. Oh! Just... <laughs> <laughs> Dave, thank you very much for uh, for coming on. We uh, obviously you're you're not you know heading off onto the horizon quite yet. It's not like you're putting on the hat and 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 getting on the horse. You're you're going to be around for a little bit longer. Uh, but it's been a it's been a great forty years. Um, I, I I still remember a, a story sitting with you and and Jeff during the uh, Ontario Wine Awards where there was some undercooked lamb and. Uh, <laughs> You just relished that undercooked. I was still moving on, on the plate, uh, and you just took everybody's chop uh, or their little lamb, their their lamb lollipop, and you just pit- polished up everybody's at the table. Oh, it was a wonderful thing. I remember that too. That was funny. So, so kudos to you on that, and um, uh, you know, thanks for all the great wine, uh, and thanks for all the great memories, and and uh, we do wish you luck on your uh, on your final retirement when you when you do hand a. Uh, finally hand it all in uh, well thank you very much guys I, I appreciate the offer to talk to you both and reminisce a bit here it's it's been fun so um you guys are doing a wonderful thing and uh, i'll keep keep tabs on you and see what's uh, what's up and coming make sure that we keep the swear jar topped up for uh for brian there <laughs> yeah you know it, it it's a weird feeling when you get a chance to meet someone who even though you've been you know a part of this industry for a decade, haven't had a chance to meet. Dave has made so many of my favorite wines. I don't know how many times I've done the the black paw versus red paw comparison, either on the radio or on my blog. So, you know, I really got to give my tip of the hat to him and to Ed and to Jeff Aubrey for, you know, giving him the, uh, the platform to make his wines. Like that was a lot of fun, what we just did. No, I was. Uh, I'm a big fan of the red paw and the black paw. I think I've finally gone through all of my uh, all of my pinots that I had. The chardonnays are long gone, um, you know. And and one of the first wineries to also do uh, 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 screw cap, uh, go and and go whole hog into the screw cap, so that those wines lasted uh, and still do last uh, a long time. Um, Dave, Dave is just one of those uh, quiet, unsung heroes of the industry that. I feel never got the recognition that he deserved. I, I mentioned it uh, during the podcast that um, that he's never. I, I don't think he's ever been seriously considered as winemaker of the year, and I think that's a huge oversight. I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, and yeah, it's um, you know it's, it's exciting to see what the next chapter is at Flat Rock. Um, it, it really sounds like he's he's leading to mentor. Uh, Allison Findlay to take the reins and uh, I, I'm yeah 
I'm still just I'm I'm kind of just letting it sink in everything that we heard because there was a lot of knowledge in this uh, past hour that we've just we've just had. It's it's gr- great to hear that he's you know going off on a high, uh, you know that he you know isn't leaving uh, on on bad terms anywhere, and that's that's always great. Uh, and, he, and he's such a great guy. I've I've sat with him and tasted with him many times, and uh, I'll I'll definitely miss him, but. Uh, have to have them over on the back deck, uh, you know, for a barbecue and and. Can uh, I come too? Like, if this COVID thing is done, uh, you know what? I I really do believe Andre that by summertime we're we're really gonna, you know, I, I don't think you, we're gonna I, be, I don't whole... think we're gonna have, have the hundred hundred people parties that everybody thinks they're gonna have. No, no, but, but like a like a ten person party. Frankly, a five person party. Anyways, you know what? I, I don't want to go down a, a bad place. Let me just start to wrap this up. Uh, once again. You know, if you've taken the time to check out our Patreon page, if you're at this part of the podcast, we really do appreciate it. Um, I know I say it, I know it sounds scripted, but I really do mean it. It's not expensive to run this podcast, but we do have some bills to cover. And when you do contribute your $2, your $5, or hey, if you want to taste wine with Michael and I, who knows? Maybe we'll find something really great from Flat Rock or something to drink with you. You could uh, make that contribution. We would love to taste wine with you. So patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. And uh, I have, I think, resurrected my website officially. I'm not as prolific as you are, Michael, but there's been some really interesting stuff happening at andrewinereview.ca. I think I'm doing my very first Taste It Again, in which I uh, I pay homage to you. I recently opened a 2010 Hinterland Lazy 12 that caused a reaction in me to a certain extent I had to write about it. So go to underwinereview.ca to check that out. Michael, you take your part of this now? Well, I, I always like to uh, see other people doing uh, Taste It Again. I always feel that I'm the only one looking at old wines and, and talking about them because it's a, it, it really is uh, an educational journey. Wine is always educational. I, I, uh, I know you and I touch on this on the podcast, and, and we're about to um, sit down with Shiraz Madiar from Malivar about this. Where the thing I still, it still confounds me the way that great Beaujolais can age, but I don't think that Ontario Gamay has the longevity yet, and I don't know if it's a terroir issue or a style issue, and I think we're going to touch on that with him. Well, yeah, we're going to do two with Shiraz coming up uh, in the summer when we can finally get together. Hopefully. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Gamay and a little uh, Malivoire. Maybe and, Chardonnay. Uh, then we're going to ah, taste shoot, some old Gamay so, from all over, so... That should be interesting. A little stump the stoop with Shiraz. I'm looking forward to that one. Me so, too. Hey, uh, who, I know we have Brian Schmidt coming up uh, at some point, and we got some other exciting uh, guests. And then, of course, there are the podcasts where it's just you and me. And I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. The website's always got something new almost each and every day. Sometimes I take the weekend off, but uh, that all depends. Uh, You're just Andre, I think it's time to uh, wrap this up. Hey, I think this so, is the first time in a long time when we've been 100% truthful. Hey, Michael, say goodnight, Michael. My God, it's uh, it's actually late. Uh, I uh, My bedtime was uh, half an hour ago. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. This episode of Two Guys Talking Wine was produced by Jim Ray. And Adam Duran.